God's word comes to us today from Psalm 149, verses 1 through 6a. This reading comes from the New Revised Standard Version, and you can find it on page 508 in the Pew Bible. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing his praise in the assembly of the faithful. Let Israel be glad in its maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing, making melody to him with tambourine and lyre. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with victory. Let the faithful exult in glory. Let them sing for joy on their couches. Let the high praises of God be in their throats. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, hopefully by now you've had a chance to read the insert in your bulletin this morning. For those who are worshiping online via the live stream, you can also look at the insert by clicking the link that says worship insert and follow along. And maybe reflected on what kind of experience this insert was describing. Now, on a certain level, a lot of what you read ought to sound familiar to you with ushers and greeters and standing and sitting and singing, opening songs and closing songs and a benediction. In fact, especially during a worship series that we're in right now in the middle of January on worship, it would be right to conclude that this piece accurately describes what happens here on Sunday mornings or Sunday night at the portico. But what if I told you that as I was writing this piece this morning, I was writing it several years ago, not in a worship service at all. What if I told you that I was writing my observations not in a sanctuary or in a church, but in Tropicana Field as I was watching a Tampa Bay Rays baseball game? Listen along as I read this piece again out loud and make a few connections for you along the way. The service begins with the gathering of the people who enter the space the baseball stadium, and find a seat, each with an unobstructed view of the action. There's a mixture of people ranging from the first-time visitors to those who come so frequently that their seats are designated for them, season ticket holders. Ushers greet people at the door, handing out programs, scorecards, that lists the order of the proceeding and the names of the principal players, the rosters on the teams. Then there is the procession of important people, the introduction of the starting lineup, followed by the singing of an opening song, which is what? The national anthem. Then following an official invocation, play ball. The people become hushed with anticipation for the service to begin the first pitch. Soon the congregation is swept up in the energy and passion of the unfolding drama as the leadership draws them into a compelling tale of good versus evil. I think we were playing the Boston Red Sox that day. 
sacrifice, literally, bunts and sack flies. And my favorite line in the whole essay, and finding your way home. For a moment, the people are transported from the realities of their everyday lives and immersed in a story that causes them to feel part of something bigger than themselves. Through their own participation, they become part of the narrative. The congregation speaks spontaneous words of affirmation. There was cheering and there was clapping. At times, they are prompted to gesture and clap and recite their allegiance and commitment. I think at one point the organist went, da-da-da-da-da-da. Oh, you sound like Tropicana Field. That's perfect, yeah. <laughs> their standing and sitting become part of the ritual, unscripted, yet somehow anticipated. I think someone started the wave, and all of us just reflexively stood up as part of that. The service draws toward its conclusion with a final song, Take Me Out to the Ball Game, followed by a clear end to the event, the final out. The people to part, to reenter their daily lives, having been moved and motivated by the proceedings of the time. I think we won the game, and everyone left very happy. So, this really begs the question, what is it really, that differentiates what happens here on Sundays from what happens anywhere else, anytime else, that people gather together to watch something. In other words, what is the difference, really, between worship and a sporting event, or a concert, or a theatrical performance, or any other kind of public event gathering? And I'd suggest to you that the answers to that question might seem obvious, but they're not simple. And they require in each of us making a fundamental shift in how we approach worship. And we will discover that making that shift is hard to do because it's in our default position as human beings, especially in the kind of culture that we live in now to make worship into something that it's not. And it requires hard, intentional work to make worship the gift that God intends for it to be. Now, the classic formula for that shift comes in the form of a metaphor that many of you may have heard. Lots of preachers like me have used it before. It comes from the great Danish Christian philosopher Soren Kierkegaard who wrote a sermon in 1847 called The Purity of Heart. And here's the metaphor that he builds. You all may have heard this before. The metaphor begins by first equating a worship service, not with a baseball game, but with a theatrical performance. And the first part of the metaphor, he unpacks how most people come into a sanctuary and first conceive of a worship service and how they participate in it. The first thing he does is he, he talks about the sanctuary as a theater. And, and this stage here, this, this chancel, he calls the stage of the theater. That's how most people conceive of the worship space. You come into the auditorium and you watch the action up here on the stage. And there are people here. We automatically assume that the people who are up here on the stage are the performers. 
the worship leaders, the choir, the liturgists, the the preachers, the people who are performing. And all of us who are on this side of a sort of imaginary line separating the stage from the pews, all of us up here are sort of hearing, receiving the promptings of the director, this sort of offstage, invisible director who is God. And people believe that it's God who is telling us up here what to do as the performers. God's the director, we're the performers. And in Kierkegaard's model, the first part of it, he says, that leaves the audience. And so who is the audience? People think that the audience are you all, the people sitting in the pews. He says, most churches, most Christians have that perception of worship. It's natural. It's popular, but he says it is completely wrong. Most churches have this inaccurate view of worship as theater in that way. But the true worship of God, Kierkegaard says, is completely different. The people on the chancel, those of us who are here on the stage, are not the performers, Kierkegaard said. We are the directors. We are the ones who are prompting and guiding the performers to perform. And in Kierkegaard's model, who are the performers that we up here are directing? All of the people in the congregation. The performers are in the pews. And it is the work of the people there to perform. Songs of praise, offering prayers, reciting the words of the liturgy, renewing with great humility our commitment to God. And so now Kierkegaard's ready for the punchline. He says, if the people up here on the stage are the directors and the people in the pews are the performers, then who is the audience? And Kierkegaard said, there is only one true audience of true worship. It is an audience of one, God is always the audience of worship. It's a powerful metaphor. Some of you may have even heard it before. And I would say that we all need that reminder of what worship is because it's much too easy to drift back into our preferred way of thinking about worship, making it more about meeting our needs. But worship is not about entertaining us. Worship is not about making us laugh. Worship is not about making us cry. Worship is not about meeting our needs. It's not, it's not entirely about coming here just to be fed or getting what we need. Worship is not about getting what we need in order to make it through the day. It's not about getting what we need to make it through the week. Those are earnest reasons. Those are honest reasons that I've heard and even offered as to why people make the decision to get out of bed on a Sunday morning and come here so that they can get what they need to make it through the week. But worship is not about us. Worship is not about us. In fact, let's say that together. Worship is not about us. Because if it were, then you all could be theater critics and consumers 
And you all could make evaluative comments about all the stuff that happens up here on the stage. And you can judge for yourself the excellence of the performance. You can gauge the quality of the music, whether it fits your preference or your style. You can judge the sermon and see how dry and awful and long and boring it is. We could get away with asking the question, did this service do it for me? Did the music move me? Did the sermon inspire me? Did the prayer uplift me? But let's say it again even louder. Worship is not about us. Because if it were, we wouldn't have to come, frankly. Because if the only reason for coming to worship is to get a pick-me-up or to be entertained, then frankly, there's a lot of other things we could be doing on a weekend to get picked up and entertained. If you want to pick me up, we could go to the golf course or go out on the water. If you're just about getting what you need, then maybe it's best to just sleep in or go away on a vacation on a weekend. If it were about us, then we could get away with the 1.2 times a month that the average Christian worship goer goes to worship in this country. But let's say it one more time. Worship is not about us. Because what happens here on Sundays is unlike anything else, any other place at any other time that we experience in our lives. You know, there's one part of Kierkegaard's metaphor that I've overlooked all these years. The number of times I've thought about Kierkegaard's metaphor over my years in ministry, there's one line in there that I've never noticed until this past week when I reread that sermon, Purity of Heart, and I caught this line. After he talks about equating the performers and the audience and the director, he talks about the stage, this chancel area where this, this action happens. And you know what he says about the stage? He says, the stage is eternity. The stage is eternity. Now, whenever you go to Raymond James Stadium, there is nothing that happens on that football field that will last forever. And when you go to the Stras and watch a performance, as wonderful as that performance may be, it will come to an end. And when you're watching the action on the ice at the Amelie Arena, there is nothing that will happen on that ice that will have eternal impact. And when you go to Tropicana Field, nothing that the rays do will touch eternity. But here, on Sunday... In the sanctuary, in the context of Christian worship, you have the chance to touch eternity. And what you do in this place can make an eternal impact because you can offer your offering and play, praise to the great creator of the universe. And you can choose to realign your commitment along the way and will of God and make an impact for the kingdom that will last. What happens here on Sundays has consequences for the kingdom. The stage is eternity. And there is nothing else that you can be a part of that comes close to having that kind of impact. Worship is no longer about you. It is about God receiving from you all the praise that God deserves 
and offering to God all the service that God requires. So the real question then becomes, from now on, when you come to worship, how will you choose to experience worship differently and make it less about you and more about God when you come into the sanctuary? When you first step into this holy place and you pick a pew and find a seat and settle in for the service and first open up your bulletin, I encourage you, don't look at this bulletin as the playbill in a theater and open it up to study what's going to happen in the performance. Don't open up this bulletin and look at it as the scorecard to read about the players who you're going to watch perform. Instead, think of yourself as the player. Think of yourself as the performer. And when you look at this order of worship, ask yourself the question, how am I going to perform for God in each item of the service this morning? In fact, I'm going to invite us to do that. To close out this sermon, I invite you to open up the bulletin right now. And we're going to go through the order of service. And we're going to go through some of the main parts of a worship service that we do each and every single Sunday morning. And we're going to ask the question, how can we make each of these items in a service less passive and more participatory? Less a spectator sport and more a performance toward God. And it always begins with the prelude. Begins with that music that greets you when you first come into this place. That's not just lounge music in the background, folks. That's not just music to get you into the mood. This as a reorientation of the outside world into this sacred space. And it's a reminder that when you're here during the prelude, we gather together. And so it would be appropriate for you to warmly welcome with a warm heart and an open mind those who are seated around you. But more importantly, it is a call for you to spiritually, prayerfully prepare for all that God will reveal to you in the coming hour. That's what the prelude is. And during the opening song, ask yourself, will I sing out loud this opening song or will I just sit passively back and just let the music wash over me? The opening song is meant to be sung. That opening hymn is meant to elicit your voice. Ask yourself the question, will I think about what I'm singing? So that in, in the classic formula of St. Augustine, he said, whenever we sing, we pray twice. I love that. First with the words that are in our hearts, and then next with the music of our song. Sing out loud those opening songs. And then when this fabulous choir offers special music, don't just see that special music as a performance. As, as fabulous as they may be, they're not performing for you. Instead, the song that comes from their lips is meant to elicit for you a prompting and a response and an affirmation. Will you allow that music to touch your heart and spirit in order to prompt you toward God, to direct you heavenward so that you, in the context of that special music, might offer your own prayer, your own confession, your own reorientation, your own recommitment to God? 
And I know what often happens. After the special music or after other elements of the service, we often clap. And I'm here to tell you, I'm okay if you feel like clapping. Uh, there are some clergy who will say, no, no, don't, don't clap because it's not a performance. But I'll, I'll share with you, sometimes that's, that's a natural response. And in fact, biblically speaking, it's, it's okay in the Bible for people to clap. The psalmist says, clap your hands, all ye people, shout to the Lord with a voice of triumph. But clap not as an evaluative statement of the performance, not as an affirmation of what the, the performers have done for you, but do it prayerfully as a, as a statement to say that something in that, in that piece has elicited in you something that has drawn you closer to God, and because of that, you are offering your praise and your offering and your prayerful attention toward God. You can clap, not as a response to the performance, but as an act of prayer that moves you in a new position and a new commitment to God. How about the congregational prayer? We do that on just about every Sunday. We often think that the congregational prayer is just a chance for us to sit there and listen or to close our eyes and go to sleep or what have you. But often it's just one voice. It's just a clergy person who reads a prayer or recites a prayer, and we think that the prayer is just a passive experience. But what if? What if that congregational prayer were inviting participation for you to fill in the blanks with the ways that that prayer might be prompting your own prayerful deepening of your spirit with God? What if that prayer were engaging you to elicit your own prayers and thoughts to God so that you can make that corporate congregational prayer even a participatory prayer as you listen and offer to God your own thoughts and your own words. And when you hear the Scripture, oftentimes when we hear the Scripture, we just sit back and we listen or we read the words on the screen. How about if as you're reading the Scripture along, you're asking the Holy Spirit to begin opening your heart and your mind and your eyes and your ears to new awareness, new insight and understanding of what that Scripture might reveal to you so that it's not just one person reading, but it's one person inviting all of us to experience that Word together. And then we get to the sermon. And of all the elements in a service, it's probably the sermon where we most often think that the congregation is the audience and people like me are the performer. I mean, on a certain level, it's hard not to think about what I do as some sort of public theatrical performance. I mean, here I am spouting words and doing theatrical gestures with my hands, and there you are watching me and evaluating your own critical reviews of what I'm doing. But thank you, Vicki. Amen, she says. Every theater has a peanut gallery, and so that one's right over here. But what if... I prepared for that line knowing you were going to say that, by the way. But what if instead of seeing the sermon as something you could just sit back and passively receive, what if we remember that in the, in the time that it takes for the words to leave my mouth and hit your ears, there is something happening 
in that sacred and holy distance between this microphone and your mind. That in fact, it's the, it's the work of the Holy Spirit that fills that gap, that enables the words of this sermon to be directly and uniquely and privately applicable to your situation. Because God knows exactly what the word is for you. And while the Holy Spirit might be the source of the sermon, the Spirit is also the mediator of that sermon. And in the process of receiving that sermon from the preacher's mouths, it is incumbent upon us to participate in opening our hearts and minds to the Holy Spirit so that we can all receive that unique word that God has for us, which may be directly related to the words I'm saying, or it may be a message that's in between the words that I'm saying, or it may be something completely different. The number of times I've greeted people at the end of worship services right there in the exit of the sanctuary and and people who've said to me after a sermon or written an email during the week saying, thank you for that sermon. I received this message and here's what I'm going to do to make a difference. And I thank you for that message that came from your sermon. And it had nothing to do with anything that I said in that sermon. And I don't, I don't take that personally. Because what that suggests is that person was open in a participatory way to whatever the Holy Spirit was saying to that person, sometimes even regardless of what I'm saying. The sermon itself can be participatory when you engage it with your heart and mind and openness to the Holy Spirit. And then we come to the offering. The offering we often conceive as simply a part where we pass the offering plate, we open up our wallets or our checkbooks, and we put some money in and pass the plate along. But what if the offering were much more than that? What if the offering were a tactile, tangible way for us to express the entirety of our commitment, the fullness of our lives over to God? What if, as you're touching that plate, you're not only putting a financial contribution into the plate for God in the church, but you are prayerfully saying, God, I will choose to live a different life. I will reorient my life in commitment to your way and will. And these are the ways that I have been touched by you to make a difference in the way that I live. What would that mean in the offering? It would mean much more than dollars and cents. It would mean that you are responding to the prompting of the Spirit which then leads to the end of every service. It always ends the same way. After the benediction, we're all standing and we, we turn around. We do a complete 180 from, from facing this way to facing that way toward the exit doors as we prepare to leave the sanctuary. But, but what if, as we turn and face those exit signs, we actually see entrance signs instead. Knowing that even though worship might be over, service can begin. As we re-enter the real world out there, a world full of brokenness and hurt, a, a world that is in need of good news, maybe as we leave, we can be fully recommitted to entering a world and being ambassadors for God's hope and light and life in the world.
so that eventually when we leave this place, we carry the worship of God into every aspect of our life. Worship is hard work. There's no other way to say it. It's, it's easy to make worship passive. It's easy to make worship a spectator sport, but worship is, a, is hard work. That's why one of the words for worship that we use is liturgy. Liturgy from the Latin words laos, meaning people, and erge, meaning work. Worship, liturgy, literally means the work of the people. It's our number one job. It is our task and our responsibility. In fact, it is the greatest responsibility we have to get to work, to come here and get busy with the most important job that God has given to us, to give God glory and praise and to renew our commitment to serving God and others in all that we do. So Hyde Park, get on the field and play ball. Let's pray together. Oh God, we sing to you a new song, a song of praise in the assembly of your faithful. We celebrate you, our maker and our king. We, we praise you with music and with word. And we pray that you are pleased by the work of your people, that we might contribute to the beauty of this world and the serving of others. Help us to celebrate you faithfully with glory and shout for joy in all that we do. And may the highest praises that we can offer come from us and our mouths into your ears so that you can be a worthy audience indeed in all that we offer. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. And let all God's people say, Amen.